Thank you all, and good morning. So a couple years ago, I was late to a lunch meeting, uh, and I had called the meeting. Uh, and, and I told people, bring your lunch. So it's important that I had something to eat. And I have pretty expensive taste, and so I was going to Taco Bell. <laughs> Thanks for laughing. <clears throat> I've been to this Taco Bell many times. I know exactly how long it takes to get there, get through the drive through and get home. So I was good. I, I was going to make it. And so on schedule through the drive through got my tacos. Life is good. But as I went to turn left out of the Taco Bell... Something had happened, and I mean, maybe even in the last day, but certainly in the week since uh, I had last been there, they had put barricades up, and I could no longer turn left out of the parking lot of Taco Bell. Now, not a big issue on most days, but I'm late, and since the road I needed to get to was 150 feet this way, or 24,000 miles that way, I did what all of us, I think, would probably do, and I turned right, and I went right around that little barricade and went to the light. Now... In case the police officer who was sitting there didn't see me take this U-turn, I did squeal the tires all the way around. Um, And so I told you I had expensive tastes and my tacos cost $155. (laughs) So how many of you have had a traffic ticket in your life? Yeah. And at the time, how many of you thought, I just didn't deserve that. That's not fair. I mean, I didn't hurt anybody. There was nobody around, uh, nobody behind me, nobody in front of me, nobody coming. Certainly, I didn't deserve this ticket. But here's what I know about traffic laws. We understand the game. I mean, I knew before I did it that I wasn't supposed to do it. I knew before I got my license generally what the rules of the road are. We see speed limit signs, and we know what they mean. Uh, And yet, if we're honest, we know that most of us break these laws a lot more often than we ever get caught. Here's what else I know about traffic laws. When somebody passes me going 80 in a 65, I mean, I'm only going 72, I am looking for the police officer to pull that person over, right? When someone goes speeding through my neighborhood where my kids play, I run out and check that license plate out. Now, I'm not going to do anything with that. I have no idea why I do this. But, you know, it, it feels good. I know who you are. Right, We like to see these traffic rules enforced against other people. And I think that we really, if we were asked and we were being frank, I think we like rules. And we especially like it when they're enforced against other people. But we even know why the rules are in place. But when the rules are directed toward us, when I have a list of rules that's directed toward me, uh, that's when I start to get a little bit uneasy about rules Generally, And so when we together as a church are studying the Bible, um, there are a lot of people that think of the Bible as just this list of rules. And we begin to think about the Bible that way, about where we're going to start today. And that is with the Ten Commandments. And so before we start, pray with me. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the people that are here. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word together as a church. We love you and we need you. And I pray, God, that the words that come out of my mouth would be pleasing to you and that uh, you'd be with us this morning. So thanks. We love you. Amen. A brief recap. We're reading the story together as a church. We're going through the Bible in one year uh, together. And I think this is a, a good thing for us to do. But in case you haven't been here the last four weeks, a brief recap. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
And on that earth, he created a beautiful garden, a place where he could live with us. Because we were designed as, as humans, we were designed to be in communion with him all the time. But that didn't last. So there was one rule we had to follow. We, we didn't keep it. So we're out and we forced a plan B. Here's the amazing thing about God. He wanted to be with us then. We messed up. He wanted to be with us some more. And so we, we see uh, after the garden, after we leave, we see that he had relationships with individuals in the Bible. So we saw that he chose Noah because of his righteousness, to restart the human race. And then you see that he chooses Abraham because of his faith, and he uses Abraham to birth an entirely new nation. Then there was a teenager named Joseph, who God was with, and he used Joseph to rescue the nation of Israel from certain starvation. And we see, especially in that Joseph story, that even in the midst of some big-time problems, that God is with Joseph. And then last week we talked about Moses and how God appeared to him in a burning bush and then led Moses as Moses led the nation of Israel. So God has these relationships, these relationships with individuals, but since the garden, he's not been in relationship with all his people. And here in chapter 5 of this story, um, that's all about to change. So go with me, if you will, to Exodus 19, uh, verses 3 through 8. It's page 59 in the story. And it says this, Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So these are the words you're to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. Like everything else, but I mean, this is really important. God says that Israel is going to be his treasured possession. In other words, he's making preparations not only just to be with them, but to elevate them above all the other people on the earth, to set them apart. And the people were on board. I mean, faced with this opportunity, they want this relationship. And you can see that in verse 8 when they say, we'll do everything the Lord has said. So that's great, but there's a problem. The problem is that God is a holy God. His people are not holy. He is perfect. They are not. They are sinful and he despises sin. He can't live, coexist with sinfulness. So if he was going to be in community again with all his people, some things needed to happen. Some things needed to change. And that's what this chapter is all about. In fact, there are three things that had to happen before God could be with his people again. And the first is he had to develop a plan. He had to make some rules, some guidelines. God needed a blueprint for us. We needed this blueprint so to know how we could live holy, to remain holy. So this came down as the Ten Commandments. You probably all remember this story, but here's how it goes. Moses goes up to the mountain where he has an encounter with God. And while he's there, God himself inscribes these ten rules, the Ten Commandments, on two stone tablets. Uh, 
in their simplest form, I think these 10 rules are divided into to two sections. The first four uh, are all about how our relationship with God is to go. And the next six are all about how our relationship with each other is supposed to go. And so uh, it goes like this, Exodus 20 and 1 and 2. And God spoke these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. One, you should have no other gods before me. Two, do not make any idols for yourself to worship. Three, don't misuse the name of God. Four, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Five, honor your father and mother. Six, don't murder. Seven, don't commit adultery. Eight, don't steal. Nine, don't lie. And ten, don't covet. Don't covet your neighbor's stuff. So those last six, how we relate to each other. The first four, how we relate to God. And it's an important distinction, those, those two sections. Uh, it's one that Jesus makes about 1,500 years later when he's asked, which of the commandments is the greatest? So in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So all these commandments, all of the law, Jesus says, can be summarized into these two. It's a blueprint for how we should live. And that's why God gave these rules to us. Not because he's a God of rules or because he wants to know uh, what he can find us and catch us to do wrong. But because he loves us and cares about us, he sets these expectations. He knows what the best way to live is. And so our creator, our designer, who knows how we need to live, wrote them down for us. We talk sometimes at work, from an HR standpoint, sometimes we talk about, you know, it's fair for me as an as employee to know what's expected of me. So it's fair if someone would write down a job description and tell me what I'm supposed to do and then what I can be measured against. That's a lot better for me than if I just uh, am told, this is your job, go do it. And then about once a year, someone tells me if I'm, if I'm doing it right or if I'm doing it wrong. It's fair to set the expectations. So God, because he loves us, Sets these out. So while Moses is up on the, on the mountain, meanwhile down at the bottom of the hill, um, the, the people are busy at work violating one of the commandments. Now they haven't received it yet, but uh, while he's up there, they, they grow impatient. And their impatience, uh, it affects their memory, it affects their judgment. It's hard to imagine, but in Exodus 32 verses 1 through 4, it says this. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. What happened? Are these not the people who just a minute ago said, we'll do everything the Lord has said? What happened then? Well, this impatience, right, that affected their judgment. I think we know what that's like. I mean, I don't know how long Moses was up on the mountain, but it was several days, maybe several weeks. And... Although I think it's absurd that 
after watching him part the Red Sea, at any point in their life, they would later say, I don't know what he's about. It's ridiculous, except that how long will you wait after sending a text message before you get annoyed with no response? How long before you nudge someone at words with friends? Right? How long will you wait for the website to come up before you hit reload or refresh? When you call someone, how, how many times do you let the phone ring? Do you even leave messages anymore? People never leave messages for me anymore. I just, I see that they called. How long will you watch commercials before you change the channel? We know what it's like to get impatient. So sometimes you look at the disobedience of the Israelites and we laugh and we make fun of them and question how could they possibly do such a thing. But make no mistake, their story is our story. The same things happen to us all the time. God makes a plan for us to be closer to him, but we build an idol to replace him. What about worship? Can we worship? I mean, we know how to worship. We don't need to be taught how to worship. I've been to a Colts game. 70,000 people cheering, clapping, standing, praising together. As excited as people can get. We know how to worship. We don't always remember who to worship. So, God knew that. That's why the very first commandment was, you should have no other gods before me. He knew that this would be our first inclination. That the sinful nature in our heart would cause us to try and find something else to worship. So that blueprint... Just really, really important. And another thing, uh, we know the blueprint, we know the rules, and we love it when rules are enforced against other people. But since God doesn't drive a black and white car with red and blue lights, we try to do the enforcing ourselves. So some of us like to read this blueprint, and then we like to tell other people, the Bible says that you shouldn't use the Lord's name in vain. And the Bible says that you shouldn't lie. Not even on your taxes. The Bible says you shouldn't work on Sunday. And even for those of us who do this with the best of intentions, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. Because first of all, we can't keep them all ourselves. Right? Uh, violating one's as bad as violating them all. We can't keep them, keep them ourselves, so our credibility is kind of shot. And then second, the law was directed to us. It wasn't directed to non-Christians. It Are they good ideas for everybody? Absolutely. Are they a good way to live? Sure. But do we have the authority to take these Ten Commandments and wrap them up into a club and beat everybody over the head with it? You know, no. Ten Commandments are for the people of God. And they're one way that God prepares us to live with Him. But remember in Exodus 20, it starts with, I am the Lord who brought you out of slavery. So he's addressing those who were formerly captive. Those who used to be slaves. If you're still enslaved, you don't need someone in your face every 20 minutes reminding you that you're a slave. What you do need to hear is who can be your rescuer. But if we run around trying to fix everybody else's behavioral problems, it just won't work. No wonder people would get fed up with us. One more point here is that running around trying to fix behavior doesn't work because sin is not really a behavior problem. Sin is a relationship problem. That's why God wants to bring us back into this perfect relationship with Him. He loves us so much and He desperately desires to be with us. And that's why He needed the blueprint. Okay, so first He needed a blueprint. Second, He needed a building. Originally, remember that God had built this garden, this perfect place for us to live with Him. 
But since we sinned and we're no longer able to be in the garden anymore, he needed an alternative place, some other spot that he could be with us. So that's the amazing thing about God. Again, he wanted to be with us, so he needed a dwelling place. In Hebrew, uh, the word is translated into tabernacle. So uh, I don't know what the Hebrew word is, but tabernacle means dwelling place. So Exodus 25, 8 and 9 says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, for I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I'll show you. All right, so then God goes into excruciating detail to explain the exact size, shape, design, and the furnishings and the colors for this, this tabernacle, this dwelling place for the Lord. Basically a large tent, 15 feet by 45 feet, sat in a courtyard that was 150 feet by 75 feet. So it's fairly large, uh, and God instructed them exactly how to furnish it. So what are you going to put into it? What are the colors? What's the fabric made of? Which requires Moses then to go to his people and ask them to bring gold and silver and scarlet thread and acacia wood and all these specific offerings to him so that he can oversee the building of the tent, this dwelling place for the Lord. All right, and so the people, again, faced with the prospect, the opportunity to have God live among them again, boy, did they respond. I mean, they started bringing everything Moses asked for because, because they were excited. In fact, they brought so much that in Exodus 36, 6, Moses said, it says this, Then Moses gave an order, and they sent this word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing more because what they, had already, what they already had was more than enough to do all the work. Tabernacle is completed. Blueprint is laid out. Building is completed. But before God could come dwell with us, there was still one more thing he needed. God needed a bridge. Again, remember God, our God? He is holy. And he knew that his people, even with the, the laws that he inscribed for them in stone... They wouldn't be able to stay perfect. I mean, we only had one rule last time in the garden and we couldn't keep that. So why would he set all this up knowing that we would fail and then have to leave again? So he didn't do that. He wanted to create a way that he could stay. And the way he did that was he needed a means of atoning for our sins. Atone means uh, to pay for a debt, to make up the balance. And so God gives to Moses a long list of every type of sin that man could commit. And to each of them, he assigned a price. And the price is always a sacrifice. And it's, it's usually one that involves an innocent animal that needs to die for a particular sin. And if it seems particularly brutal, it was. Um, but remember this. They didn't have checking accounts back then or savings or 401ks or a home equity line to borrow from. So while this was a blood sacrifice, it was financial in nature. This is where people's possessions, this is where their wealth was wrapped up. So think about this. What if every time you made a mistake, what if every time I had a traffic ticket, including the money I had to pay to the state, what, what if I also had to bring an offering to the church? $100 bill, drop it off in the offering plate, your sins are forgiven. That would curtail the activity a little bit probably at least the ones that people knew about. And all these sacrifices that are laid out in the Bible, and most of them are in the book of Leviticus, and I think we can all agree that Leviticus is a pretty tough book 
to get through every year when you're trying to read through the Bible. In fact, that's a lot of times. People, people read Genesis every year. People read most of Exodus every year. But boy, you get to Leviticus and it just stops. <laughs> Maybe I'm the only one. But that's why I really like the story. Uh, most, of, most of Leviticus is summed up on page 70 uh, of the story. And it says this. God instructed his people to bring specific offerings to the tabernacle. Burnt offerings, grain offerings, fellowship offerings, sin offerings, and guilt offerings. The line of priests was anointed, and an intricate system of animal sacrifices was instituted for the atonement of people's sins. All right, so there it was. God had a blueprint, God had a building, and he, He had a bridge. So it's now time for Him to come and be in relationship with His people. And it's an amazing story. So how does that affect us today? First, it reminds me how fortunate I am to live in the time that I live in. I get to to live here after Jesus came. Because God reveals this new covenant in the New Testament through His one and only Son. And uh, we're going to skip right ahead to that. In Hebrews, the author reveals it it this way. In Hebrews 10.4, it says, It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So I'm glad I didn't live then when it was impossible to really take away the sins with the blood of boats, goats and bulls. But if they couldn't, then why do we still care about this system of sacrifices? I mean, why do we study it? Why is this important for us as a church to read and understand? I think first it shows us how detestable sin is to a holy God. I mean, when you read about the amount of blood that flowed over the altar of the tabernacle, I think you can't help but know that sin is costly. The freedom that God offers isn't free. Galatians 3.25 says this, Now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. So, if we don't have to be guarded by the law anymore, again, why even study it? What are we doing? I think the law serves lots of purposes for us today, too. I mean, first, it restrains our behavior. Think of it like a speed limit. It certainly does curtail the speed that I drive. It slows it down when I see that on 136th here, it's 40 miles an hour. It does. It restrains, the law restrains our behavior. But the bottom line about the law is coveting other people's stuff makes you miserable. Lying, cheating, stealing, strained relationships in your family... They just complicate things. It's a, it's a hard way to live. If we can do these, if we can allow the law to restrain our behavior well, life's better. God's way is a good way. And second, it protects us. Um, I'm sorry, but the law helps us see how we fall short. And understanding that we could never keep the whole law, right? There were 613 commands in the Old Testament. But even just the 10, knowing that we couldn't keep even the 10. I mean, when you think that you're doing well and you're not violating the Ten Commandments, then Jesus comes along and he ratchets up the pressure. He says, you know that you shouldn't commit adultery. But if a man looks at a woman with lust in his eye, he's already committed adultery. He says, if a man hates his brother, he's already committed murder. I mean, I haven't taken any of my wife's earrings, melted them down and formed them into a calf and worshipped it. 
But I fall all the time into the trap of putting other things before God more important. We all fall short. And that bridge, that bridge is crucial. And there's good, and there's good news. The good news for us is Jesus has come. He came to earth 2,000 years ago and he came to provide all these three three things that God needed to be in relationship with us. First, he fulfilled the blueprint. He came, he said, to be the fulfillment of the law, to show what it looked like to be lived out completely. And it's because of Jesus that we're no longer subject to this law. Romans 10.4 says it this way, For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. It has been fulfilled. And he came to provide the building. Because Jesus came and died for our sin, God no longer needs a place to live here on earth. His Holy Spirit can live with us in our hearts. So we don't need a garden and we don't need a tent or a specific building. Because for anyone who knows Jesus Christ as his or her Savior, it's no longer God with us, but Christ in me. That's why we're, we're pretty consistent in saying that Genesis Church is not about this building. It's a great building. It's not about this building. It's about all of you. It's all of us. That's Genesis Church because Christ lives in our hearts. So he provided the blueprint. He, be, he provided the building and he became. Third is he became the bridge. When he came and took the place of all those animal sacrifices that were required for our sin, he became that bridge. Hebrews 8 says it this way, if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. But when God found fault with the people, he said, the day is coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. They didn't remain faithful to my covenant, so I turned my back on them, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day. I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And they won't need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already. And I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. The God of the universe is saying he won't remember our sins And to be clear, it's not because he's forgetful. It's because he's chosen to cancel the debt. He wants to be with us that badly. So the perfect animals, innocent, without blemish, that were sacrificed prior to Christ, they weren't perfect at all, and they've been replaced by the perfect lamb, by God himself, Jesus, fully man and fully God. He's the only man who ever lived a sinless existence, and God allowed him to be thrown on the altar To take our punishment for us. Why would he do that? It's for you. It's for me. Because to God, we're worth it. Apparently, we are worth dying for. And so maybe that's the encouragement that you need this morning. To know that he loves you so much to create a way for you and I. That we could be found not guilty under the law. That if you have Jesus in your life, if you commit your life to him... He's already paid for your sin. He made this offering on the altar in your behalf. And because he did that, one day, everyone from the least to the greatest will know his name. 
And for those of us who respond to his call, who give up control to him and who put our faith and trust in Jesus, for those he'll come and dwell in us. And then God will forgive our wickedness and he'll never again remember our sins. We get to spend eternity with him starting right now. He's tearing up our traffic tickets. He's throwing out the prosecution. And the case is closed. So thank you, God, for this. Let's pray. God, you're amazing. You didn't have to do any of this. And you chose to do this because you love us. We don't know how to respond to that. We don't know how to thank you for that because it's something that's beyond comprehension. Your love is beyond anything we can even imagine. Lord, we thank you. Thank you that you loved us so much that you you created a place to live with us. And when we messed it up, you found a new way for us. Thanks for loving us so much to tell us what you expect of us. Thanks for sending your Holy Spirit to live in us. We're honored to be your dwelling place, God. We know we don't deserve it, but we love you. We love you and we need you. It's in Jesus' powerful name we pray this morning. Amen.